0: And this afternoon I invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be reading verses 19 through 26, Acts 9, Acts 11, 19 through 26. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's interesting we come across this passage... um, it struck my mind when we were doing in our Bible studies a mini-series on the names of God's people, what names God's people are called throughout the, particularly the New Testament. And one such name by which the people of God are known uh, is Christians, according to verse 26 of this chapter. But we want to look this evening at this church In Antioch, these were new believers, new converts, and the writer Luke tells us that these believers, these disciples, were first called Christians there in Antioch. You know, decades ago, the term Christian was deemed honorable. Today, this is harder the case, at least in our culture, in the first century, just as it is in our time, Christians were severely persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. The church at Antioch, we read here in our text, was born out of a context of persecution. And following the martyrdom of Stephen, recorded in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, we are told there in Acts 8... 1 to 3, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, what some would regard as a great setback for the church, God, in his power and providence, we see here, used for the advance of the church. Verses 4 through 6 of Acts tells us, Acts chapter 8 tells us, that the gospel spread even more. We read, now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and when they heard him they, and saw the signs that he did and so on and so forth, there was a great move of God among these Christians, these persecuted Christians, as they went about speaking the word of God. Although Stephen's death was a great loss for the church and appeared to have been a victory for Satan, God turned that apparent victory of Satan into defeat. And how so? First of all, we see that these early believers were in no way intimidated. They were in no way daunted by even the fiercest opposition. Rather than cowering before their oppressors and going on the retreat, the Word of God tells us they went everywhere preaching the Word. And people not only paid attention to them, but they responded to their message believing on Christ. Secondly, Paul himself. Paul himself, the great persecutor, the one who was destroying the church, became a believer in Christ, so much so, we are told that it was commonly reported among the Judean churches, throughout the churches of Judea, and this is what Paul is reporting to the Galatians, he who used to persecute us, is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, Galatians 1. And verse 23, in fact, Paul, in Galatians 1.24, said that they glorified God because of him. We then read in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, the words which we read earlier. These words of our text. So thrust out of the city of Jerusalem through persecution, these believers, notice, did not go into hiding. They did not go on the retreat. They did not cower in any way from their persecutors, but they simply went everywhere preaching the word of God. And as they preach in the regions of Antioch and its environs, the power of the Lord, we are told, attended their ministry so much so that many came to faith in Christ. The church at Jerusalem heard about the many converts there in Antioch, and what did they do? They sent to them, verse 22, Barnabas. This new body of believers could not be left alone. They needed guidance. They needed spiritual direction. What's more, they no doubt needed spiritual direction because spiritual protection. Why? Because very often where you find new converts, new converts often provide the breeding ground for false teaching and false teachers. And so sensitive to their spiritual needs, they sent, that is the Jerusalem church, sent one of their missionaries Barnabas, just as they had done in Acts chapter 8, verse 14, with Philip's ministry among the Samaritans. Why was it important for the Jerusalem church to do this? Well, not to lord it over their faith, not to flex their authority, their spiritual authority over these Christians, but to use the language of the Apostle Paul to be helpers of their faith, to be helpers of their joy. The reason for doing so was not to flex their authority, was not to show who was in charge, but to really help these new believers in their newfound faith in the Lord Jesus. And notice whom they sent. They sent the right man for the job, Barnabas. Because not only was he himself a Greek-speaking Jew, but because he was evidently one who was gifted with This with exhortation. In fact, according to Acts chapter four, verse thirty-six, Barnabas appears to have been his nickname because we are told there in Acts four, verse thirty-six, that his name was Joseph, and he was named by the church Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And from verses twenty-three and twenty-four, we get a picture of Barnabas's meeting with these. New believers at Antioch, some things we learn here about this man, Barnabas. First of all, what he saw when he came to them. What did he see when he came to them? Verse 23, he saw, Luke tells us, the grace of God. When he came, he saw the grace of God. Well, what does that mean? It means that in observing their lives in Interacting with them and talking with them about their newfound faith in the Lord Jesus, he detected that God had indeed done a saving, transforming work in their hearts and lives. What he saw in them was a veritable work of divine grace. He saw a group of Christians who were soundly converted, a group of Christians in whom the saving grace of God had took effect. The challenge for you and me is this, can the grace of God be seen in your life and in my life? The grace of God not only saves, the grace of God transforms. And we know that because Paul in Titus chapter 2 verse 14 he says this, for the grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared and what it does it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust we should live soberly righteously, and godly in this present world. And so that when the grace of God is evidenced in a life, what will be clear is that that person is living a life of holiness, a life of sobriety, a life of godliness, a life of expectancy with respect to the Lord's coming What did Barnabas see when he visited these Christians? He saw the grace of God. Well, how did he feel about what he saw? The Bible says he was glad. We see that in the B part of verse 23, he was glad. And certainly nothing should cause us joy, nothing should thrill our hearts than to see the work of God in the lives of others, particularly new converts. Yes, because when a soul is saved, here's the point, that is a miracle of divine grace. It is a miracle for which we should be joyful. Why? Because broad is the way that leads to destruction, many go in that way, and few... Enter the narrow gate, and when a soul is saved by the grace of God, then that is something surely to celebrate, something to rejoice about. Barnabas he saw the grace of God, and how did he feel about it? He was glad. Are you glad when you see God at work in the lives of other Christians? We learn. What he saw when he came to them, we learn of what, how he felt. Well, thirdly, what? He did. Look at the C part of verse 23. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That word exhort simply means to encourage, to comfort, to challenge. All of those ideas are inherent in the word exhort. In his ministry among these new believers, At Antioch, Barnabas, notice, urged them to live for the Lord. He urged them to serve the Lord. He urged them to stay true to the Lord. In other words, he presented to them, frankly, the truth that Christian living is not a bed of roses. Christian living entails difficulties, it entails challenges, and of such it requires determination, it requires constancy of effort. Hence the need, he says, to endure, to walk with the Lord with steadfast purpose. Fourth, we learn in the A part of verse 24 who he was. We learn of what he did, we learn of what he saw, we learn of what he felt, but who was he? Who was Barnabas? Verse 24a, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Let's break that apart. Barnabas was a good man. And the question becomes, who, according to the word of God, is a good person? Who is a good person? The Bible says there's none righteous, there's no at one, won, there's no one who is good but God. But here we are told Barnabas was a good man. And the point we need to make here is when the Bible says Barnabas was a good man, the Bible is not referring here to the idea, just as the word is sometimes used, often used in our time, Barnabas was not simply a morally respectable do-gooder. A good man, according to the word of God, is one who, having come to faith in Christ, saving faith in Christ, trusting in the righteousness of Christ, turns from his own goodness, turns from his own good works, and in turning to Christ, he becomes or she becomes a new creation. That's what the word of God teaches. Any goodness apart from that is as filthy rags, is worthless. A person could be good in a morally upright way, in a respectable way, in terms of decency, in terms of being highly respected in his neighborhood, her neighborhood, in his society, in her society, and still land up in hell away from God's presence. Because, you see, we're not saved, you know this very well, we're not saved by our good works. We are saved not by our goodness. We are saved by the goodness, by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good person, as Barnabas was, trusts in the righteousness, in the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was he? He was a good man. But notice, secondly, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. A good person, as Barnabas is described here, is one who has the spirit of God. And the strength of Barnabas's character was evidenced by the fact that he did not just possess the Holy Spirit, he did not just have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit had him. He was full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? doesn't mean what some people think it is today, namely jumping around, shouting around, doing all kinds of bizarre activities. To be full of the Holy Spirit or to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to come under the controlling power and influence of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that life look like? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22-23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, suffering, gentleness, goodness, meek, faith, temperance, and so on and so forth. A person who is in possession of the Holy Spirit and is full of the Holy Spirit will manifest what we see in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 as the fruit of the Spirit. Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit in that he was under the controlling influence, the controlling power and directive of the Spirit of God. It meant that he exhibited in large measure the fruit of godliness and righteousness. Meant, in short, that he was a man of God. That's what being a man of God means, or a woman of God. A man of God or a woman of God is full of God. That's the idea. Full of the Spirit of God. That he was full of the Holy Spirit suggests that he fervently loved the Lord, and he walked in the ways of the Lord and then the strength of Barnabas's character was evidenced early by the fact that he was full of faith. He was a good man, he was full of faith, and uh, he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. And surely he must have exhibited before these young believers something of that matured, time-tested faith that was rooted in the Lord. We learn, fifthly, in the B part of verse 24, how we impacted these new Christians. We read, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Here we see that besides these new converts he saw when he went there, many other people came to Christ as Barnabas ministered there in the church at Antioch. Clearly Barnabas' his ministry among them, his godly character, his godly influence, touched the lives of many there in Antioch. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people turned to the Lord, were added to the Lord. Suggested there is the power and far-reaching effect of a faithful godly ministry. Paul writes of this very thing in his epistle to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. There is a correlation between what happens in the lives of God's people and what happens in the lives of those who lead them. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul was not simply an orator preaching the word of God. Paul preached with his life. He preached not only with his lips, he preached with his life. And what Paul is saying here is you know what kind of manner man we were, what manner of men we were among you. He says very much the same thing to the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 3 and 4. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities. You can see then how this church flourished under the leadership of Barnabas, he was an able teacher, but he was also a man of outstanding godly character. Sixthly we learn in verses 25 and 26, the strategy he employed. The strategy he employed. What strategy did Barnabas undertake with these new believers there at Antioch, even as these new believers, this body of believers kept on growing. Here's what Luke tells us. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. That is the Apostle Paul. Saul who later became the Apostle Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You notice what's happening here. Notice the correlation between Barnabas's life, what was said of Barnabas's life, the growth of these Christians. Notice what was said here concerning his going for Paul, their teaching for an entire year and a great many people, um, taught a great many people and notice the last, Clause, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas and Saul, that is the apostle Paul, worked to establish the Antiochian church in the faith. That's why Barnabas sent for Paul. Well, so that they could have these believers grounded in the faith, that he could have them mature in the faith, that he could have them becoming an independent local body of faith. Believers, and how did they accomplish this? What did this labor entail? An entire year of nothing but teaching the word of God. They devoted themselves to teaching these believers there at Antioch. We read in verse 26b, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Teaching is very important, the teaching and preaching of the Word of God. And we should say, specifically, teaching is vital. Preaching is good, yes. What is preaching? Preaching is proclaiming divine truth, is proclaiming the truth of God. But there needs to be what? Teaching. Teaching is explanation. And if people are not taught, if we have nothing but proclamation, proclamation of the gospel, then people will not really understand their faith. And that's what Paul and Barnabas were all about, teaching, explaining the gospel, explaining the word of God, showing its implication for the lives of God's people. And if you look back at verse 26, there's every indication that these believers internalize the truths they were taught, the preaching they had heard, the preaching and teaching to which they were thoroughly exposed. There's a suggestion there that it totally transformed their lives, their mindset, their whole way of living. The last clause of verse 26 hints at this because Luke tells us, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now when those early believers in Antioch were called uh, Christians, referred to as Christians, we must not take it as being necessarily a complimentary term on their part. Given the hostile and even indifferent attitude of many toward the gospel and toward believers in the first century, this was perhaps less than a complimentary name. The term may have been used as a slight, as a nickname, as a sort of mild derision. The idea behind the word is this, Christ ones. They were given the name evidently out of a spirit of skepticism, of, of kind of derision, of, you know, you know those Christ ones. But here's the point. Point was this, that these Christians so imitated the Lord Jesus, these Christians so lived according to the ways of Christ, that when their detractors looked at them, when their persecutors looked at them, when people who were hostile to the gospel, even indifferent toward the gospel, looked at them, they could not escape the fact that these people had been with Jesus. They were so devoted to Christ, the unconverted in that city saw them as mimicking as it were as my as imitating the lord jesus christ the question for you and me is this to what extent this is a very serious question to what extent as people look at your life my life can they recognize us as christians not talking Christians in the broad sense of uh, being like, you talk about cultural type Christianity, where everybody today is a Christian. No, we're talking what even some of them would describe as evangelical Christian. But here's the point. Can they look at us and see that we are bona fide, hardcore, genuine believers in Christ? To use a common Cliche, somewhat hackneyed question if people were being arrested for being christian and it was told that you are a christian <laughs> would there be enough evidence to convict you to get you in trouble it's a serious question these Christians lived so close to Christ, they so imitated the ways of Christ, they so reflected the character of Christ, that they were given the name Christians. They were never always called Christians. Believers in those days were never always called Christians. They were first called disciples. Disciples. They were called brethren. They were called saints, but never Christians. At Antioch, in particular, the Christians, that the people at Antioch, were first called Christians. What a challenge to you and me. As I said, the question for us to answer as I close is to what extent do others around us recognize us as Christians? And sadly though, many make the claim of being Christians. Their lives reflect little or nothing of Christ. Many here But do not do what Christ commands. Beloved, is it true of you that others recognize and regard you as a Christian? Do they recognize you? That you have been with Jesus as the Sanhedrin observed concerning Peter and John. In Acts 4 and verse 13. Remember what was said of Peter and John. As the Sanhedrin, the council looked at them. They took note. When they perceived that they were unlearned. Unlettered men, they took note of them that they had been with Jesus. Something struck them. Listen, you people were with Jesus. What a challenge. And so, may we, by God's grace, as we saw this morning, as we learned this morning, not in our own strength, not according to our ability, can we be like Christ, but only as his spirit works in our hearts, in our lives, as he by his grace, work in and through us that we can walk worthy and reflect that name, Christian. May God grant that it might be so in your life and in mine, for his name's sake.